Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Joining us now is Tim Mack, live from Kyiv. He's the founder of The Counteroffensive, which is a news organization specifically dedicated and focusing for what's going on inside of Ukraine. It's good to see you, Tim. Great to see you. Absolutely. So, Tim, you're joining us for the two-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine of the Russian invasion. You've done some fantastic work at The Counteroffensive. There's a link down in the description. We encourage everybody to go and to support it. Just to tell us a little bit about the actual operations that were happening, You, uh, to mark this occasion, you actually wrote a very interesting story about one of the most important battles that's actually happened so far in the war. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so the battle is a battle called the Battle of Antonov Airfield. And what happened there was in the first 72 hours of the full-scale invasion, the Russia's, Russia's most elite airborne units landed at this airfield trying to secure it so that large cargo planes could come in with armored vehicles and thousands of other Russian soldiers and surround and destroy and occupy Kyiv. And so our story that's out on counteroffensive.news is all about eyewitness accounts from that battle and how close they came to losing it, that is the Ukrainians, uh, as well as how close uh, Kyiv came to falling. I mean, had that battle not turned out the way it did, um, Zelensky might have been killed, as was a a Russian primary objective in those early hours and days, uh, and Kyiv might have fallen as well. Now, it it really was won just by a little bit of a, by a thread. I mean, Ukrainian uh, mm-hmm. artillery. Only four pieces were available that day. They managed to fire on the airfield and prevent Russian uh, forces from landing there and, 
and pushed Russian forces back. So, Tim, one of the things that you've been focusing on from drawing from the battle then is then the next two years or so of the war. What? Why was that battle so foundational to kind of like the lore of the Ukrainian military, its ability to push back those Russian forces? And uh, how does it square with some of the things that you are seeing on the ground today? Well, it set the stage and the conditions for the whole war after that that Russia was not able to establish that quick lightning strike, 72-hour occupation of Kyiv. And they were ultimately driven out of the Kyiv region and later out of the Kharkiv region in the east. So the battle lines that we see drawn now are very much um, the results of this first 72 hours in around the Kyiv area, but that prevented Russian troops from flying into the capital um, and, and made the, the, the work of the Russian military much, much harder to the extent that years later, they're still trying to work back west. I mean, um, had that battle not turned out in the way it did, we might be talking about a situation where Zelensky was ultimately killed. Right. We might be talking about the war taking place in western Ukraine right now instead of eastern Ukraine. I mean, it set the stage for so much more to come. And it was just one of those battles um, built out of epic desperation. We, you know, there's a story in in this in this uh, report that we did about a members uh, that uh, soldiers that were supporting Ukraine running out of ammunition and while making an ammo run, running um, essentially hitting Russian soldiers with their car that they saw walking along the side of the road. Wow. That was how desperate it got: is that they would use any means they could whatsoever to fight back. Tim, how do we relate this battle to some of the major discussions happening here in Washington right now around aid to Ukraine? I'm curious, as somebody who's actually there, what you can tell us about some of the morale stories that have come forward, recruitment, debates inside the Ukrainian government about mobilization, the new commander. How does that fit with what we're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that the morale in Kyiv and other parts in the country are, are really quite low. Um, you know, from the American perspective, America has enjoyed a lot of support from Ukrainians and, and a lot of thankfulness from Ukrainians over the last two years. But I think at this point, there is a concern in Kyiv that that the tide of war might be turning against them. And, and this is this is one of those moments where a major American strategic victory might turn into a major American strategic defeat, simply because it feels from the perspective of a lot of Ukrainians that the United States hasn't kind of kept up their end of the deal and mm. supported them when they need them the most. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Ukrainians do believe that if they're properly supplied in long run, that they can hold their territory and uh, push back against the Russians. I think the Battle of Antonov Airfield shows what can happen when even not so well-equipped Ukrainians uh, are pushing back against people trying to take their territory and, and, and hurt their families. Um, and so Ukrainians very much still believe that if they're properly equipped and aided by their allies, uh, they can push back and, and win this war. I mean, victory is a kind of ambiguous idea, um, mm. but uh, there, there's a lot of confidence that if they if they get the support that they need and they, they've been asking for from the West, they can certainly succeed. Um, that's the risk. That's the moment we have here as we uh, enter the third year of the full-scale invasion uh, is Ukrainians looking at the West who had promised them support until the very end, uh, not holding up their end of the deal. Interesting. Yeah, it's interesting you you mentioned their uh, hold their territory and victory. Um, just from your conversation with people in Ukraine, what does victory look like? You ask 100 people, you get 100 different answers. Um, I think 
to some, it can mean uh, the um, the continuance of democracy and 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 uh, the ability for free free people to choose who their political leaders are in Ukraine. For others, it could be a territorial issue, uh, the reestablishment of Ukrainian holdings of territories based on a certain date. Um, one senior Ukrainian official uh, made a really interesting comment, saying that that he know, he will know when victory has come when they are able to go to the airport in Kiev and fly to the Hague, where they will be able to see um, Putin and other top Russian officials get tried for war crimes. And mm-hmm. so the two elements of that is the resumption of commercial airline services and accountability for crimes committed against Ukraine. So there are so many elements here, right? It can right. be territory, it can be economic, it can be legal. Um, so you, you ask a lot of people, you get a, diff, a lot of different answers, but I think that uh, that if you're looking holistically, all of those in some way will be part of what your average Ukrainian will believe um, uh, victory includes. Hmm. Well, I appreciate your perspective. It's not it's, it's rare to actually get somebody who's on the ground there. I encourage everybody to go and read Tim. The counteroffensive, there's a link down in the description. We encourage everyone to go subscribe. Appreciate you joining us, sir. Thank you. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Breaking Points Beyond the Headlines. My name is James Lee. Over the years, you might have heard a little or a lot about the Church of Scientology. Its high-profile association with Hollywood A-listers like Tom Cruise and John Travolta have long lent the institution a veneer of glamour and legitimacy. However, the recent sexual assault conviction against Danny Masterson, an active member of the church, and a lawsuit filed by former member Leah Ramini against the church have revealed cracks in their carefully curated image. Today, we dive into this mysterious and controversial organization. Seventy-five million years ago, the galaxy was ruled by a tyrant named Zeno. One day, Zeno rounded up various wrongdoers and imprisoned them in volcanoes on Earth, which was then called Tidiak. This is the world according to church founder L. Ron Hubbard. Hydrogen bombs were dropped on them. Then their spirits, called Thetans, were trapped in humans. And that is the cause of all our sufferings. Only through Scientology can our Thetans be clear. Wow, I think we're going to need some expert help to unpack all of that. So joining us today on Breaking Points is a former Scientologist and host of Growing Up in Scientology on YouTube, Aaron Smith-Levin. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I just played for the audience a little clip of L. Ron Hubbard. He's talking about Xenu spirits and exercising Thetans. Can you break down for us in a simple term as possible? What is the core teachings and practices of Scientology? Um, I'll do my best. Uh, the, the core teachings and practices do actually change as someone goes up the levels in Scientology. There's levels that are non-confidential and at the higher end, there's levels that are confidential. So the thing about Xenu and the body Thetans, most Scientologists don't actually know about that, believe it or not. So the most fair and charitable uh, description that I can give you for what Scientologists believe, all Scientologists believe, even at the lowest level, is they believe that everyone here on earth is an immortal spiritual being. Their word for that is Thetan. People say it sounds like Satan with a lisp, but it's just Thetan. Uh, Scientologists don't believe in a heaven or a hell. They just believe that Thetans just continue to exist forever, uh, that this body is just sort of a temporary vessel. When, when your body dies, you just pick up another body and live lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. Now, there's another aspect to this, which is that uh, they believe Earth is actually a prison planet and that the Thetans who are sort of sentenced to live lifetime after lifetime here on Earth are here because they've kind of been um, banished here as a, a, as a punishment, sort of that this is quite literally a prison. And that um, normally a Thetan in native state that, that wasn't in this prison planet would have full and total recall of all their previous lives because you know a Thetan just exists forever. And, and that the reason we only remember one lifetime at a time is that every time we die, uh, we as Thetans are sort of pre-programmed as, as a part of our prison sentence uh, to report into these, these stations 
uh, called the Between Lives Implant Stations that wipe our memories from lifetime to lifetime and that we're programmed to then shoot back down to earth and pick up a new body and, and just live a new lifetime with complete amnesia of uh, not only our previous lives, but our, uh, our native uh, godlike spiritual potential. Well, I, I, does that does that do a little bit of a of a service for now? I, <laughs> it sounds a lot like a blend between science fiction and religion. A little bit of that coming together. That's right. Now you might go, okay, with that fundamental belief system, what what, what is Scientology actually doing with that belief system? Well, Scientology has a one on one uh, form of counseling uh, therapy. They call it auditing, and Scientologists believe that with enough auditing, you can regain enough of your spiritual awareness and powers to skip, uh, to bypass these between lives implant stations and to regain your ability to have a total recall of your previous lives. And that the goal of Scientology is to get enough people into Scientology and that once Scientologists succeed in getting enough, uh, at least half of the population of earth up through these levels and unplugging them uh, from the matrix, basically, uh, that we will instead of reincarnating to earth, we'll reincarnate to the next planet and, and get the, the cycle started on the next planet. They call it target two. Now what's crazy is that like 90% of Scientologists in the world don't know anything about the Xenu story. They've never heard the word body thetan. They don't know anything about that part of it. They only know about your own reactive mind and trying to get rid of your, your own reactive mind. Um, so I don't know that <laughs> that's the, that's the three minute elevator pitch for Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> I know this this can also be a long answer too, but can you give the viewers a little bit of the skinny on your journey in and out of Scientology when you joined, when it is and why uh, that you've left and a little bit about the in-between and also the post-Scientology um, experience? Sure. So I was four years old when my mom got involved in Scientology. She was introduced by a friend of hers, which is how most people get into Scientology. Some friend introduces them. Uh, so I was four. Some of my, my earliest memories in life is just being in the Scientology organization in downtown Philadelphia with, you know, a whole bunch of other Scientology uh, kids in, in the nursery there. Um, I lived a relatively, my mom joined staff. So instead of being what a science, what Scientology would call a public Scientologist, that's someone who, who pays to do Scientology courses or who pays to receive Scientology auditing, which by the way, auditing costs between 200 to $500 per hour. It's, it's not, it's not cheap. So she joined staff. That means you work for Scientology. It's like your day job. Um, and, you, and, and, and the Scientology courses and auditing that you get, you don't have to pay for them. So that's why a lot of people join staff. So as a kid, I lived a relatively normal life until about 12 years old. I went to public school and everything like that. Uh, when I was 12, my mom took me and my brother, uh, my stepbrother, my stepsister, uh, two of her friend's kids, uh, pulled us all out of school, and we all started working full-time for Scientology in Philadelphia. And then we moved down to Clearwater, Florida to do Scientology training down there. So, you know, from the age of 12 to 26, I worked full-time for Scientology. I did, I did not go to high school. I did not finish middle school. I, I did not, I do not have a diploma or an equivalency degree or anything like that. Uh, I ended up joining what Scientology calls the C organization. That's like their most dedicated core of staff members. Uh, if you're in this, if you're in the Sea Org, it's not just your day job. It's your entire existence. It's three, 24, seven, 365. It's all you do. Uh, you don't own property. You don't, you, know, you don't own a home. You, know, you can only have a relationship with other Sea Org members. You cannot have children in the Sea Org, such, su such is their dedication to the cause. Um, so 
uh, after a certain amount of years, uh, I, I met my wife and got married in the C organization. After a certain number of years, we were just a little fed up with kind of how unfulfilling and abusive the experience of working in the C org was. So we got pregnant knowing well that we would have to leave the C organization. So we left the C org uh, because we were having a baby, uh, but we were still public Scientologists for a while. That started to change in 2009 when the Tampa Bay Times, back then it was the St. Pete Times, published a series of interviews with very high-ranking former Sea Org executives, people who had been famous personalities in Scientology. Uh, these people had not only left the Sea Organization, but had left Scientology altogether and were speaking out for the first time. So <laughs> these former executives who were starting to speak out were telling the most horrific stories of abuse, of imprisonment, of, of quite literal torture, not quite Guantanamo level, but close. And for me, that was like the first major crack in the dam of going, uh-oh, a lot of things I have believed were true my entire life are clearly not true. I don't know exactly where everything stands, but something's not right. <sighs> for about the next three or four years, I was on a pretty gradual path of discovery of what exactly uh, the lies were. And, um, and it, it quickly became clear to me that it was pretty much all lies. And um, part of the, the, the tail end of that path for me had to do with, I, I mentioned earlier that there's non-confidential levels and there's confidential levels. Well, there's levels even above the confidential levels. They're so secret, they're so confidential, they've never been released yet. They're, they're still in the vault. It, it's, it's like the magic, right? And, and it's sort of the carrot that gets dangled in front of the faces of Scientologists is guys, we need to work a little bit harder. We need to donate a little bit more money because L. Ron Hubbard said these unreleased levels can't be released until Scientology reach, reaches certain expansion benchmarks. So we just need to try a little bit harder. Well, once I found out from people who I knew would actually know that there ain't no such thing as these upper confidential levels. L. Ron Hubbard did not leave behind anything. They looked everywhere. They looked through all of his papers and his files and his records and his cabinets and there ain't nothing. I was like, someone should have told me that 25 years ago. I'm ready to get on with my life. <laughs> Before I, I do want to get into the, the controversy a little bit that you're alluding to this control type of thing, but I did want to ask you, what do things people just in, in the real world, what do we get wrong about Scientology? Because I'm certain there has to be some positive aspects to Scientology or else no one would join. Well, let me answer two different ways. I think one thing that people would get wrong about Scientology is just um, not truly understanding that most Scientologists have never heard the Zen that uh, most Scientologists don't do not know anything about the Xenu story or the body Thetan story. Um, Scientologists uh, know everything that I explained early on about the between lives implant stations and the prison planets and, um, you know, the Galactic Federation and, and all sorts of stuff. They've just never heard the Xenu story. So if you've seen South Park, you know more about Scientology than most Scientologists do. Um, uh, and to answer the question the other way, at the lowest introductory levels, Scientology is actually very practical, um, sort of helpful in, in like a self-helpy uh, personal coach, guru, motivation, Tony Robbins-ish, Grant, Grant Cardone, who just happens to be a Scientologist. Um, you know, uh, we, we can, you, can, you can fix all your problems. Just hustle a little harder. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, people, people who end up joining Scientology, they don't think they're joining a cult. 
And at the very lowest levels, Scientology doesn't feel like a cult. It feels self-empowering. Uh, it's giving you a positive message. Uh, you can you can overcome any obstacle. You can solve any problem. You you are all powerful natively. All you need is the right tools. And for nine ninety nine, we can give you those tools. So, um, but but honestly, I wonder. Well, I mean, the question was, what do most people get wrong about Scientology? I wonder how many people actually understand that. What on the flip side of that? What is so? If there's all these good things about Scientology. It's practical. It gives you these kind of self help tools. What's the worst part? Why why do people like why are you you said you were driven to leave because of certain things that you saw? Is it the is it the secrecy? Is it the control they exert over people's lives seemingly? Is it the leadership? Is it David Miscavige, corruption? What's your opinion on what why where does Scientology go wrong? Um, in my personal opinion, the easiest answer to the question is where it just overtly goes out of its way to destroy families, the, fa the family unit. Um, because Scientology has this belief, like we're all just basically 60 some trillion year old beings. They have this belief, like if you have a child, that's not really your child. It's just your body gave birth to that body, but you're a Thetan and that body's animated by a Thetan and Thetans don't give birth to Thetans. Thetans are just all natively godlike entities. So this, this belief completely uh, minimizes uh, the value of familial relationships. And Scientology will demand that people sever all ties with anyone in their life who is negative about Scientology. And it doesn't matter if that's your mom, dad, you know, spouse, brother, sister, son, or daughter. To me, that is where Scientology gets really, really bad. Um, now there's financial aspects as well. So because Scientology holds that, you know, th this entire existence is really just the matrix anyway. And, you know, higher education is pointless. Retirement accounts are pointless. Savings accounts are pointless. Um, the only thing that could possibly have any value in this lifetime is helping Scientology expand and get more people into Scientology and, and up Scientology's bridge to total freedom. Those... Uh, that that whole construct leads to just financial decimation of Scientologists. Now, when I mentioned before that um, the experience working in the Sea Org just got to the point where it was not fulfilling and it was abusive, L. Ron Hubbard created this management system where he says there is no natural, explainable reason why stats would ever go down. In order for stats to go down, somebody has to actively be forcing them down and sabotaging the organization to make them go down. Well, unfortunately for Scientology staff members, Scientology is shrinking, not growing. So there's this constant witch hunt happening internally in the organization to find out who is it that's sabotaging the organization. Now, the problem is you can never point the finger up. You can only ever point the finger down. So, so it's the lower level staff members that are constantly uh, just being harassed and interrogated and punished for the fact that more new people aren't coming into Scientology. When the reality is the people at the lower levels of the organization have absolutely no control over the reason why Scientology is shrinking. Uh, you know, they have absolutely no control over it. And so the experience of working for Scientology, everyone is just always pointing fingers at each other and, and witch hunts all the time. And it's just exhausting. Yeah. I want to pivot to talking a little bit about the work that I think this ties in the work that you do today. So you live stream almost every day. I think 
every day or almost every day, you have conversations with other people about Scientology. So I'm wondering what is your goal? Is it to get people out of Scientology? Is it bringing attention? Is it pressuring the government or the IRS to remove its tax exempt status? What's your motivation? It's definitely all of those things. Um, sometimes on my channel, I will say, fundamentally, I'm simply motivated by pure revenge. And if I can do as much good in the process, <laughs> but, but success is the best revenge. And so I define success as making sure that former Scientologists who have their, their own stories that highlight how abusive and destructive Scientology policies and practices are, that all of those voices can, and can get as big of a reach, as far as a reach, and be heard as loudly as possible. Um, and, and I almost relish the fact that we're all doing it with just phones and computers and no budget, whereas Scientology spends hundreds of millions of dollars on the most expensive professional, you know, AV operation possible. And yet the voices of former Scientologists who are telling the actual truth about Scientology um, are being heard louder uh, with no budget than everything Scientology can muster. You mentioned earlier that Scientology is on the decline. So what I'm wondering is, what do you think is the outlook for Scientology over the next few years to a decade? Is this something that we need to actively pay attention to, or is it going to die out on its own, just let things play out? Where do you see things going? Yeah, interestingly enough, a, a, little, bit, a little bit of the both of what you just said there. It is dying out on its own. I do think it still deserves uh, to have attention paid to it, and it deserves to have its, uh, uh, the, the, the speed of its demise accelerated. Um, I certainly enjoy contributing to the acceleration of that demise. Now, uh, uh, practically speaking, I don't think Scientology ever ceases to exist unless you uh, succeed in getting its tax exemption taken away. It already has its tax exemption taken away once before. The IRS determined that L. Ron Hubbard was personally enriching himself from Scientology, and it stripped Scientology of his tax exemption. In 1993, it won that tax exemption back after a years-long a process of harassing thousands of IRS agents personally. Scientology is probably the only organization in history that succeeded in bringing the IRS to its knees. It is my hope that um, sort of what we're doing here with SPTV and, and a whole bunch of other activists who are um, you know, doing similar things who've never had anything to do with Scientology, that we will eventually succeed in getting enough grassroots support for uh, revoking Scientology's tax-exempt status, that members of Congress will take it up as, as a popular cause. And that eventually, I hope within the next 10 years, uh, we will succeed in getting Scientology's tax-exempt status revoked. Even if Scientology keeps its tax-exempt status, its membership will continue to decline. But the problem with ha having this, this tax exemption is because it has a special type of religious tax exemption that protects it in the courts. Like if you sue Scientology and you try to get the judge to look at a, a, a particular policy letter in Scientology, the judge will go, whoa, 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 that's religious scripture. I'm not even allowed to pass, to give an opinion on whether that's abusive or not. Um, and also because they're tax exempt, their operating, their operating expenses are as close to zero as you can get. They do not pay property tax and they do not have any, pay, they do not have a payroll. All of their staff members are considered volunteers. They don't have to pay any of them. And, and even the ones they do have make like, you know, 50 bucks a week or less. So Scientology probably makes an, a more interest on its cash reserves than it costs to keep all the organizations in the world open. Uh, electric and water is the only expenses Scientology has. So they will continue to exist as an entity 
as long as they have tax exemption. And that's why I think getting that tax exemption revoked is a, is a worthy cause, even if their membership will continue to dwindle on its own. There's less than 30,000 members in the entire world. I mean, it's probably closer to 20,000 at this point. All right. I think we have, there's actually probably a lot more than we have time for today. So Aaron, I want to give you an opportunity to, to tell people where they can find you, find more of what, what you do, what you're talking about, uh, whether it's on YouTube or other platforms. Growing up in Scientology on YouTube is where I uh, focus all of my efforts. I've got socials and stuff, but you know, uh, growing up in Scientology on YouTube is, uh, is my, my central thing. Everyone can just find me there. All right. Awesome. We'll link down below and uh, everybody go follow Aaron. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about the growing grassroots protest movement against Scientology, I recently joined some of the protesters on Hollywood Boulevard to do some on the ground and behind the scenes reporting. The video is live over on my YouTube channel, 5149 with James Lee. Head on over, check that out. Give me a follow. The link will be in the description below. As always, thank you so much for watching Breaking Points, and I appreciate your time today. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. 
someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me is my good friend, is Johnny Burka. He's the president and CEO of ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. But for our purposes, he's the author of a brand new book that we have here in front of us, Gateway to Statesmanship, is the selections from Xenophon to Churchill. It's been edited with an intro by you, Johnny. So it's great to see you, my friend. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sagar. All right, so why did you decide to uh, assemble this book? What is the purpose behind a book about statesmen? As if there hasn't been a million already. Why this is It's pretty simple, but you say there's there's been a million, but in America, we have this genre of uh, self-help books for entrepreneurs. True. There's a million of them, right. Peter Thiel, Zero to One, uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great, but nothing really comparable exists for statesmen. We have a lot of books about historic statesmen, but this book is really a collection of practical uh, self-help leadership advice that was presented to political leaders going all the way back to antiquity in East and West, really connecting the world of theory to the world of action so that they can better govern their country. So who are some of the people uh, that are included in here? You have Xenophon to Churchill. So uh, there's a lot of people in between that. So give us a taste of some of the people we're pulling from. Absolutely. So in the ancient world, I have uh, Han Fei, who's an ancient Chinese legalist. All right. Uh, In India, I have Katilia, who wrote a book, The Artha Shastra, um, which I've included selections from. And then in the Middle Ages, I have um, uh, Gopidas's letters to Justinian the Great. Uh-huh. Uh, I have some Thomas Aquinas in there. And of course, as we get to the Renaissance, we have Machiavelli, Thomas More, and Erasmus. And then I brought the tradition up to date and included some Churchill and de Gaulle and right. Theodore Roosevelt. I'm a big de Gaulle fan. We may be controversial, but I think he was a, a very, very interesting leader. So uh, if we're going to look through the book and we're going to consider this, were great statesmen made by the moment? Uh, did they rely on a lot of previous... Churchill, for example, is very well read. He probably could be quote by many accounts. He could quote Roman poetry off the top of his head. I don't think de Gaulle was as educated as him, per se. Roosevelt certainly, you know, he he was of a patrician class, but he was more of an instinctual type of leader. So what, what is it? Do you have to read self-help advice? Like, do you need a book like this? Do some do, some don't? And uh, why do we not seem to have statesmen, as many statesmen today as we did back in the past? Yeah, so really yeah. a great statesman arises when two things intersect, virtue on one hand, mm-hmm. that's you know the moral, the intellectual qualities, but on the other hand, fortune has to align with their particular moment. True. If George Washington was born 10 years earlier or 10 years later, we might not know his name, America might not exist as it does today. But take someone like Charles de Gaulle, who you mentioned that you're a fan of. So de Gaulle actually uh, wrote this book called The Edge of the Sword, and Mm -hmm. I've included the selection in there. And he wrote this book when he was in his early 30s. He hadn't accomplished anything in life. He Mm -hmm. sat during World War I as a prisoner of war and mostly drank coffee, smoked cigarettes, and wrote old books. And so he sat down and he actually articulated the qualities that he wanted to see in an ideal political leader. And he had this profound sense that he would one day lead and rule France. And then the political moment aligned. And he, of course, led the resistance to the Nazi invasion founded the Fifth French Republic and served it served as its president for 10 years. So there's, there's a, a delicate interplay between harnessing mm. fortune uh, for your political rise. Why do you think we don't have that many good statesmen? You had an interesting question, I remember, on Twitter. You're like, who is the last good, who is the last living statesman? And I said, I, I can't come up with a single mm-hmm. answer. I think Kissinger was the last great one that we had. You can hate him, you can love him, but he had a coherent 
ideology. He was uh, very well rooted. He had accomplished a lot in his life, again, whether it was you know good and or bad. Everybody else just seemed to kind of be bumbling along. I mean, even some of the bigger mistakes that have been made, you know, Iraq and all, that was not part of a grand ideological project, at least per se in a Kissingerian sense. So what is it, why is in the last 30 years we have no great statesmen? Sure, I think there's yeah. really two reasons. One, at the beginning of the progressive era, this is going back 100 years ago, there was a shift away from statesmanship classically understood mm -hmm. to management, expertise, bureaucracy. So the art of the, the, the statesman has been lost. And then secondly, I think it really comes to our educational system. Mm. Uh, if you go back to the education of Cyrus, uh, describing Xenophon's education, right, he was raised in almost a Spartan culture. I'm not saying we should bring back <laughs> that level of rigor, but basically they taught him the principle of restraint, self-control, uh, mastery of self, uh, from a very young age, and that played a big role in his uh, shaping his leadership abilities. Today, we really don't read any old books, any mm. classic books. We don't teach students to think or to write the way that we do. And I think we saw this recently with the, the controversy at Harvard and so many other elite oh, universities. That's a good point, that's a good point. So you write, uh, leadership requires painting a beautiful portrait of the world that you'd like to inhabit and installing confidence that you are the best person to make it a reality. In an age where truth and goodness have lost their potency, beauty, and as wiser minds have noted, could save the world. So how do you bring that back in an mm -hmm. era where, look, institutional education is not coming back in any sense. Is it just to read books like this at scale? How do you recreate it? Yeah, well, I think uh, that quote on beauty is really mm. important. It's something that gets lost. I think a lot of conservatives in particular tend to over-intellectualize politics. Mm -hmm. They think if you get the ideas right, if you get the policies right, then, then you'll be a great leader, right. right? And that's not really how it works. Great leaders throughout history have been builders of beautiful things. I go back to Justinian the Great. He built the Hagia Sophia. Yes, that's right. This is a structure that is around yeah. 1,500 years later, and he coupled that beauty because he knew, he knew that most people, they're not persuaded by logic. They want that mm. big, compelling story. That's why a Lincoln or an FDR were such successful presidents, even, even a Reagan. And so I think it, it comes back to that storytelling and to painting that beautiful vision that can really capture the imagination of the next generation. All right, well, uh, it's, it's a treat to actually have something like this on. So it's Gateway to Statesmanship, Selections from Xenophon to Churchill. We'll have a link down in the description. Everybody go and buy it. It's good to see you, my friend. Thanks again. Thanks for watching. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. 
Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.